One of the only blessings, or I guess you say the few blessings of the internet, is that funny people are able to share their humor with the rest of us. Recently, I came across a post of an old cartoon where Joseph is apologizing to Mary. How many times do I have to say, I'm sorry, I forgot to make reservations at the inn, okay? And underneath, it's a caption. You know, you've got Mary and you've got the animals and baby Jesus in the feeding trough. And the caption reads, the real reason it was a silent night. And, and I just laughed pretty hard at that. I thought that was great. Of course, if you read the story of Jesus' birth, primarily from the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, you find that the story itself, <clears throat> it reads like um, something unplanned. It's frenetic. It's hurried. Joseph and Mary seem to be caught off guard, both by the pregnancy itself and then all of the things going around them. The Roman census, the need to travel back to Bethlehem, all of that seems difficult. And you can imagine a woman who's very pregnant, about to give birth, having to make that journey in the ancient world. And then here are these shepherds. They're just doing their job. Uh, they burst in sometime after Mary has given birth. The whole thing feels rushed. They think we choir has sung a song about the shepherds running off, hurrying to tell people, right? It's all rushed and frenetic. But then if you read the birth narratives in the context of the Gospels, or even if you take a further step back and you read it within a larger context of what's happening in the transition between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Gospels kind of form the center the heart of your Bible. If you're reading it that way, there really is a sense of calm. It's as if this is naturally what's supposed to happen next. In fact, if you're reading it, the Jewish Bible, you're reading through the end of Second Chronicles, you're reading about the destruction, the, the breakdown of the Davidic kingdom. Israel wants a perfect king. Matthew comes along and presents Jesus as that king. And so there's this idea of calm. If you've ever gone through a difficult trial in your life, you feel pushed and pulled in all directions, like saltwater taffy on that machine in the candy store. You know life can feel unplanned and frenetic and hurried. But then... Afterward, sometime later, you look back and you see God's hand working in all of it. That's what Christmas gives us here. It's just the story itself. There's the hurried motion of events swirling around like leaves and debris in a hurricane, but then outside the story, calm. And what this does is it helps us see God's sovereign hand throughout the Christmas story. Matthew's gospel begins with this lineage, this lengthy lineage, tracing Jesus' line back to David, back to Abraham. And it connects Jesus to these two important Old Testament characters, and it does for many different reasons, all of which are important. But it demonstrates... Also, that throughout the centuries of time, God was directing life. 
that he was orchestrating the events on this earth, particularly for this singular moment in time. Joseph and Mary, what are they thinking? <laughs> you know, they're talking to each other. I know life's been weird. Uh, you're pregnant. You shouldn't be, but you are. An angel came and appeared to you and told you all about it. And then an angel came and told me all about it. And now there's this Roman census and we've got to go to Bethlehem. Isn't it great that God's in control? I doubt they had that conversation. Just like we rarely have that conversation when we're in a situation like they are. But in scripture, we have the blessing of context. And so what we have here at the beginning of Matthew is proof that God controls the affairs of life. I want you to consider with me three important thoughts. That God rules the affairs of men, that he overrules our sin, and that he directs our steps. All of those are kind of leading you to this idea that God is sovereign. So consider with me first that God rules the affairs of men to accomplish his ends. And in this first section, the names that stick out to me the most are Judah and Tamar. Here we have in verse 1, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begat Isaac, Isaac begat Jacob, Jacob begat Judah and his brethren. And up to that point, the most important name is Jesus. And then, of course, Abraham and David. Uh, or uh, David, And then you have uh, Isaac and Jacob. I get that. But to me, the most important names are the ones that come at the end of that verse. In verse 3, or I'd say in the middle of the verse, we have Judah begat Perez and Zerah of Tamar. Can you consider with me the beauty of what God is doing in this chronology? Man, this is letter A, turns the beautiful into ugliness. Abraham here, he's the mediator of, God on, of God's grace on the earth. He appears um, a few centuries after the great flood has all but wiped mankind from the face of the earth. God created man. Man sinned against God in rebellion. Man's sin consumed the earth. God almost destroyed man leaving Noah and his family protected from that flood that destroyed the earth. And Abraham is, is a descendant of Noah through his son Shem, who's, by the way, still living on the earth at the time of Abraham. And here, a few hundred years after the flood, the world is repopulating. Noah is dead. Shem and his brothers are likely still living. And God doesn't choose them for this mission. He chooses Abraham. And in doing so, he shows the world his grace. God, in Genesis 12, covenants with Abraham that he will bless the nations of the world. That Abraham will have an important lineage, even though he had no children. You know, his wife and he are older. They have no kids. God says, go out and look at the sky. You see all the stars? Look at the sands on the seashores. You see all the sand? Your line, your people coming from you will be more than these. And through you, there will be a blessing on the earth. And through you, the nations of the earth would be blessed. And of course, we know by considering the story in front of us that Jesus is the promised seed 
promised to Abraham back in Genesis 12, and the blessing referred to is the covenant God's making with Abraham all about Jesus. We know that. But the covenant that God makes with Abraham extends outward to his family. And so you have Abraham, then you have the son that's born to him, Isaac, the son of promise. And from Isaac, we have Jacob. And Isaac is blessed because of his father. Jacob is blessed because of his father and his grandfather. And at this point in this, you go blessing, blessing, blessing. This is all great. You're reading Matthew's gospel, maybe in Aramaic, maybe you're reading it in Greek, or maybe in Latin, or later you're reading it in English in a translation. But it's a blessing. And then you get to verse 3 and you go, wait a minute, what? Because verse 3 is really ugly. Maybe you don't realize it just by reading it, but let me tell you, it's really ugly. Because even as you consider God's grace in the story, you have to consider the wickedness that man is doing throughout this lineage. Jacob's sons are generally ugly figures in the story. The first three sons aren't even mentioned. Who was Jacob's first son? Reuben. I, I'm not going to go into detail why he's not mentioned, but he sinned pretty badly uh, with Jacob's concubine, and he's not mentioned here. Simeon and Levi are violent men. They're not mentioned here. Judah, and, and if you read the story of Jacob's sons, you go, really, he's the one you picked? I mean, Judah is not that much better. In fact, he's pretty bad. And the story of Judah is the best that can be found among the older sons. You're just kind of left scratching your head going, what? Because here, he, he's pretty wicked. Now, I will grant you, he does show faith in God and how he treats Joseph's brother Benjamin in the story of Joseph. And, and because of that, he's blessed for his faith. But the ugly story here is between Judah and his daughter-in-law, Tamar. And I will spare you the gritty details, but if you want to go back and read that in the book of Genesis, you know, that's on your own. It is a pretty gritty story. It's pretty ugly. If the story was given a rating, it would be an R rating, okay? It is pretty bad. Judah's sons die. Tamar is left without an heir. I will give you the general idea of the story. It's a big problem back then. Judah promises Tamar another marriage. It doesn't work out. Judah comes along and unknowingly treats Tamar as a wicked woman. He's pretty wicked too. In fact, when she is pregnant, he says, let her be burned. Bring her out. I'm thinking, why isn't he burned? Why does it have to be her getting burned? But here we have the sons of Judah born to Tamar, Pharaoh, and Zerah, likely twins. Born from that union. And that's really ugly, folks. And God, letter B, turns man's ugliness into more beauty. You see here the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Jesus is born into an ugly world. Like Rossetti wrote, a world of iron, a world that's cold and dark. Man's sin has led to its initial destruction in the flood, and, and God, in his mercy, has not yet destroyed the world again, but he certainly could have. The sons of Jacob sin against God in so many different ways, and Judah and his relationship with Tamar is included in this. But in this ugliness, God brings his beauty of Jesus. And into the darkness, he brings his light of salvation. And into the sin, 
He brings his righteousness because the end of the story is not Judah and Tamar, it's Jesus. And that's what makes the story so beautiful. And it reminds me that even when I am submerged in the ugliness of man's sin, as we are in our culture right now, and it could be my own sin, it could be your sin, it could be the sin of a child or a parent or another family member, it could be the sin of a friend, the sin of a church member, the sin of a co-worker or a neighbor, someone around you, you're just submerged in a world of sin. I realize in that time, in that moment, where I feel like I'm drowning in sin, that the ugliness of sin, God turns to beauty in Jesus Christ. That's what makes it so beautiful and grand. All of that comes with Jesus. I got a note this morning from my son that a young Marine veteran up in Northern Virginia who went to the same church that he attends, our Sunday church, has committed suicide. That's ugly. That's sin. That's what that's that's not just his sin, it's the sin around him, it's the hopelessness of sin, all of that. And even in a believer, that can happen where you just get so hopeless. You're you're just so eye to eye with the ugliness that you just feel overwhelmed. You feel like there's no place to turn. But there's Jesus in that ugliness. And he is so fair. He's so beautiful. He is the altogether lovely one. And we see him, God's grace, and we see in him God's light. We see in him God's beauty. And we just marvel at it. And when we feel like the ugly is too much for us, turn to Christ. Turn to his beautiness, beautiness, beautifulness. However, I should say that. Not only is God ruling in the affairs of men to accomplish his purposes, he's overruling their sin for the same reasons. And, and he overrules, this is letter, letter number two, the sins of people to accomplish his ends. And the people I want you to focus now on are Salmon and Rahab. Here you have Perez and Ezram, and Ezram and Aram, or Ram, and Ram, Aminadab, and Aminadab, Nashon, and Nashon, Salmon. Matthew's lineage leaps 400 years and four generations. That may not be possible, but it may be possible. Matthew isn't really overly concerned that his generations line up. In fact, he goes 14 generations, 14 generations, 14 generations, but we know that really isn't totally 14 generations in each group. Uh, when one begats another, it doesn't have to be father to son. It can be grandfather to grandson, great-grandfather to great-grandson. So you understand what's going here in the begats. It doesn't have to be exactly perfect. That's not how the Jews would have done their begats. But we know almost nothing about these four. Genesis 46 lists Hezron as the son of Perez. That's what we have here. And then second, First Chronicles 2 is probably what Matthew is borrowing from. Lists Ram as the son of Hezron. Aminadab is the son of Ram. Nashon is the son of Aminadab. And, and by the way, in Numbers 2, he's mentioned as a leader of the tribe of Judah. So when they're talking about setting up the tabernacle and all the different uh, tribes are in different spots around the tabernacle, you find here Nashon he, he, uh, is the son of Aminadab. 
And Aminadab here is the leader of the tribe of Judah. It's pretty cool uh, that he's mentioned there as a leader among that tribe. And what we have among these four generations, though, is the wilderness wanderings in Egypt. It's kind of the context in which it's given. You, unless you know that, you read these names in Matthew, you don't really know it unless you understand Hebrew history. But here we have uh, the time from Judah is Jacob's son. They're entering Egypt. Remember, Joseph goes down to Egypt because he's sold into slavery there. Jacob, there's a later famine in Canaan. And Jacob and his other sons come down. They find Joseph's alive. He's now second in command in Egypt. And he becomes, uh, they, they come there and they're comforted in Goshen. And they bring their flocks and herds and family and they live in Egypt. Later, they're enslaved by a new ruling class in Egypt. And, and they are there for 400 years enslaved in Egypt. And during that time, there's a lot of sin that takes place. Not just the slavery uh, in which they find themselves by the Egyptians, but the Jews themselves become pretty idolatrous. When they, back when they leave uh, Egypt, they take a bunch of their idols with them. That's just kind of weird. There's unbelief in the people of God, even after he rescues them from Egypt. Um, they, they hit all these different obstacles, and they go, God can't do this, and then God does, and then they hit the next obstacle, God can't do that. I mean, how... Uh, illogical is it to, to realize God opened the Red Sea and you cross through on dry land and three days later being uh, super complainy pants because you don't have anything to eat or drink. Now, I know eating and drinking is really important, but if you just saw God kill the entire Egyptian army and you just sang this big psalm to him that he is so beautiful and wonderful and great and he can do anything, do, do you not just say maybe we ought to pray about it? But, but then we realize that that's kind of human nature. We're not that far off from that ourselves. And you just, instead of seeing God, you see a whole lot of sin. And for hundreds of years, you see sin and sin and more sin. And then you have this story, all of a sudden you have Salmon and Boaz of Rahab, and God turns man's sinful license into grace. This is really what happens, because we learn the story of Boaz in the book of Ruth, Here's this farmer, he's got some wealth, right? And he's interested in helping the Moabitess widow. Oh, by the way, he's the son of Rahab. All that beauty in Ruth that you see, and, and, and we'll talk about that in just a moment, but all that beauty in Ruth, who's Boaz's mom? You remember the story in Jericho? Twelve men went to spy on Canaan. Ten were bad and two were good. And they wander for 40 years because of the report of those 10 bad men. And then finally the 40 years ends and Moses goes to Pisgah and he's, he dies and God buries his body. And then Joshua takes over and they cross over the Jordan just like they crossed over the Red Sea. They cross over the Jordan. They, they erect all these stones as markers to what God has done. And then they get over there and the first city they come to is Jericho. And it's this walled city and the walls are incredible. And so they do what great militaries do. They erect these big catapults and, and send in their armies. No, no, they don't do that. They do what no army in history has ever done again. Maybe they should, you know, maybe. <laughs> send to Putin. You want to take over Kiev? Send your army. Just have them walk around it. That'd be weird, wouldn't it? To see an army trying that strategy. But here they are walking around it. They walk around it seven seven times, and on the last day, a whole bunch of more times, and they get around it, and then they blow trumpets. They all shout, 
they're quiet all the time, so they're walking around. It's spooking everybody inside. And then they shout, and then the walls fall down. Archaeological digs have found ancient Jericho and the walls fallen down, just like the Bible says. They fall down. The people rush inside. And in that whole story, there's this one woman. She's an evil, wicked woman, just terrible. Her life's ugly. Her life's a tragedy. She's a wicked woman. But she had heard about God and what he had done for them on the other side of the Jordan River with the children of Israel. She'd heard all the stories, and she believed them. And when these two men show up at her door, or a group of spies show up at her door to come spy out the land, she goes, uh-oh, this is about to happen to us. I need to be on your side. And she actually converts to Judaism. She becomes a Jew, a convert, and says, please remember me. And they talk about tying the scarlet cord like Rapunzel, you know, letting this out of your window. Got this scarlet cord. And, and they come in and everybody's killed except her and her family. And then along comes one of these soldiers. And his name is Salmon. And he sees Rahab and says, you know, she's, she's a pretty woman. I'd like to know her better. And somehow a romance begins. They get married and they have a son and his name's Boaz. And God takes all of the ugliness and makes it beautiful. And what you see here in this story is God is taking the line of Jesus and marching it right through some of the most important stories of the Old Testament. And he injects Rahab into that story right into the line of Christ. And God takes the ugly and makes it beautiful. Friends, there's all of this sin, all of this Old Testament sin, just piling one story upon the other upon the other, some of which you get into the judges. It's hard to read. But right there in the time of the judges, then you read this story. God overrules that story to make something beautiful. And you know, it just reminds me, aren't you glad that God's grace overrules all of your sin? Watching my children grow up, I mean, they're, they're way past the age where I remember life, you know? I mean, you get old enough, you stop, you stop remembering things. On the other's end, they just kind of get lost, right? Um, I guess in grade school, I probably hit my memory and went back farther than it does now. All that's kind of hazy and gray now. But I remember high school, I remember college, that's where my children are now. They're, they're out of college, just about out of college. And Melanie's married, and they're, they're in life. Okay, this is way past. And I remember all of the dumb decisions. You know what? I don't remember all of them. <laughs> Thank the Lord. Do you remember all the decisions where you could have been killed? Or, or your life could have taken a turn that would have just wrecked it completely? One step more. One more action. And boy, everything you are now would not be like it is. And God just overruled all of that to put you where you are. Isn't God good? Isn't the beauty of God good? Because he takes all of that ugliness 
And somehow, you know, I mean, think about a woman making food for the holidays. I'm going to take this horrible flavor, and I'm going to take that horrible flavor. You take all the, the bad things in your kitchen, and there are bad things in the kitchen, okay? You know, maybe you add one little spice to something nice, and it's better, but you put all those spices together. It's not, it's not good. It's bad. You ever eaten something real bad like that? Hmm. Somehow God takes all that bad, puts it into a big pot, and then puts himself, and it just is all good at the end. And into your life, God says, I, I know you're wicked. I know you're sinful. I know you've done a lot of horrible things. And if we were all honest with one another, we wouldn't even want to be friends with each other. If we started confessing how black our hearts are and can be. I've had unsaved people tell me stories about Christians that they know. You know, they'll send me an email. You don't really know what she's like. You don't really know what he's like. Some email of some other Christian and start telling me all these things. And I think, you don't even know the gospel, lady. You don't understand the gospel, sir. God overrules the ugliness. God overrules the terribleness. He overrules the sin. And when you look at your own life and you see all the tragedy and the awfulness and the sin and the blackness and the darkness, you need to realize that the whole point of the gospel is that God is bringing into that blackness himself to turn it into light. And aren't you thankful that God does that? Aren't you glad that God turns away in his mercy what you deserve because of the choices you make? That great hymn that we sing, Great is Thy Faithfulness, is taken from a verse in Lamentations. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. In fact, when John was praying this morning, he referenced that, that verse. Do you realize where that's taken from? What's going on? Israel is being destroyed. The pagans are overrunning the towns. They're destroying Jerusalem. They're taking everybody captive back to Babylon. And the armies of Egypt are there. There's, it's, just, it's just terrible. The promised land is gone. It's being forsaken and abandoned. If you read Ezekiel, you find that God's spirit actually leaves the temple. All of this is happening. And, and even in the midst of all of that, Jeremiah wakes up one morning and says, it is of God's mercies that we are not consumed. They are new every morning. And how often we forget how sinful we are that we can't stand up in a, on a morning and say, great is thy faithfulness. Because we forget how good God has been to turn away his wrath from our sin. Well, not only does God rule in the affairs of men, not only does he overrule our sin, but finally he directs our steps and this is really kind of where it becomes personal. You look here in the middle of verse 3, or the end of verse 3, you have Pharaoh's begetting Ezram, Ezram, Aram, Aram, Aminadab, Aminadab, Nashon, Nashon begets Salmon, Salmon, Boaz of Rahab. Boaz now, what does he do? He has Obed of Ruth, and Obed begets Jesse, and Jesse, David the king. Man turns the knowledge of God into idols. 
The time of the judges is a time of great idolatry. The people are stuck in a sin cycle. And I, I will just tell you, it doesn't get much better in the time of the kings. If people misunderstand what it says when it, the writer of Judges, I believe to be Samuel, says people did that which was right in their own eyes. It, it says because there was no king. It just means there was no law in place. There was no legal system, so they could do what they wanted. There's no laws. And you kind of see that lawlessness in Judges. When you get the law uh, with Saul, does it become really better with Saul? Not really. You have a legal system now, but it's still pretty bad. But this sun cycle is pretty terrible. They, people grow tired of God's rule. They become interested in idols. Then they turn to idolatry. God sends another nation in to afflict them. They cry out to him in repentance. Then God sends along this judge to save them. And then they rejoice because they're saved. And they live for a time in that joy. And then that generation kind of goes dies out. And then there rises up a new generation who grows tired of God. And they begin the cycle over again. They become interested in idols. They become idolaters. And then a nation comes in to afflict them. And just the cycle goes. And what you find in Judges is what really begins to happen in a major way later in Israel. You, you find David, uh, the king, and his son Solomon, who's kind of a mixed bag. He's, he's a good king in many ways, but he also has idolatry in his heart. And then his son, Rehoboam, is not a good king. <clears throat> he's not the worst king, but he's not that good of a king. And Jeroboam, who takes the northern ten tribes, he's a terrible king. And he sets up these two idols, and those idols become a stumbling block for the northern kingdom until they're destroyed by the Assyrians in, seventh, in the 8th century B.C. And so what's happening here in Israel is pretty bad. And in the middle of the story of Ruth, by the way, the story of Ruth in the time of the judges. So right in the middle of all that, we have this beautiful story. And until the exile, the Jews play around with idolatry. And, this, and, it, and these are the two sins that begin the, the commandments, right? Have no other gods before me. Make no graven images. And in the middle of that story, Ruth comes along. And it's really interesting what happens here because you've got a guy, Ruth begins with this guy named Elimelech. And Elimelech, well, that's a really neat name. Eli is the word for God. Elohim, Eli, Eli. Melech is the Hebrew word for king. God, king. It means God is my king. That's what his name means. But his whole life is the exact opposite of God is my king because there's a famine in the land. And why do you have a famine in the land of promise? Because the people have sinned. And instead of repenting of that sin, they decide they're going to leave Israel, which is also a sin, and flee to Moab. And so here's Elimelech and his two sons, Malon and Chilion, and they go off with their dad and mom into Moab. They marry Moabitess women. They are violating God's word all over the place. God is clearly not the king of this family. And the two women, Orpah and Ruth, come along, and they, they marry, and Malon marries Ruth, and then Elimelech dies, and Malon dies, and Chilion dies, and all you have left are the two daughters-in-law and Naomi. And, the, and, the, and Naomi says to them, God has treated me bitterly. God has not treated her what she deserves. But she's bitter and angry against God. God's treated me bitterly. And she says, go back to your families. And of course, Orpah goes and goes back to her family. But Ruth says, where you go, I'll go. Where you lay down, I'm going to lay down. 
where what you eat, I'll eat, and your God is now my God. And here comes Ruth back to the promised land, and and, and Ruth's out one day, and they gotta have food. So Ruth's a hard-working woman. Um, she gets out there in the fields, and she finds this field, and it's just a field, folks. It's just a field. There's not a big sign. Ruth, come here, future husband. You know, a big arrow. That's not there. She just wanders up to this field and says, well, this looks good. And she begins to go behind the gleaners and gather the grain, gather some that they can make bread from this, from this food. And here she is. She's gathering it. And in the middle of all that, we find that God is turning these idolaters into God-fearers. Because Boaz, he then meets Ruth, falls in love with her, and marries her. And God interjects himself into the situation. Ruth and Naomi return. They happen upon Boaz's field. Ruth is received well by Boaz and the workmen. And by the way, the first thing that Boaz and the workmen notice about her is that she's a good worker and cares about her mother-in-law. It's not her beauty. She may have been a gorgeous woman. The Bible doesn't really give us any indication about her beauty, but clearly she was beautiful on the inside. And she ends up married to Boaz after some kind of strange things happen. Really strange stories. But she ends up married to Boaz, and they get married and have a son, and they name him Obed. And do you think, in the middle of all that, Ruth here, the Moabitess, is saying to her husband, Boaz, well, Boaz, isn't this cool? God has decided to place me, a Moabitess, into the line of Jesus. That wasn't part of the equation. That never crossed her mind. She, she's just living life. Why Obed? I don't know. Why not? Sometimes Bible questions don't have Bible answers. Why did they name him Obed? Family name? Favorite restaurant there in Bethlehem area? I don't know. We don't know. Those Old Testament names have meanings, and maybe the meaning is important there. I don't know. But we know that then that Obed guy grows up. He gets married to somebody. And the, together they have a child named Jesse. In verse 6, Jesse begat David, the king. Now, this is pretty cool. In just a few generations, you go from a guy named Elimelech, whose name means God is my king, to a king appointed by God because his heart followed after him. And you read that and you go, nobody can do this but God. That's why these stories in the Old Testament are so captivating because it's so incredible what's happening here. God looks at this man who is says, you're my king, but, I'm, but he's really not. And, and he leaves and sins and he dies, but God raises up to him lineage through this man Boaz, whose mom was a harlot Canaanite woman. He raises up to this family a great-grandson who will then be the leader of the people. And my friends, 
This is your life. I have no idea where it's going from here. I have no idea if a year from now, if I'll be alive or if you'll be alive or if you'll be in this church or if I'll be in this church, we don't know. You, we, we just can't, we can't see the future that well. It's impossible. We make plans. We, we try. We ask for wisdom. We do all those things, but we just don't know. But friends, God directs our steps. We, we're sitting in this room today because God directed our steps. Started with me sitting in a missions conference in Indianapolis, Indiana, as a 31-year-old going, God doesn't want me to do what I'm doing any longer. i got to do something else. I think I need to plant a church. Going home and telling my wife, working through all the tears, the wailing. That was, that was me wailing after she was beating on me with her, her fists. You know how violent she can become. And moving to Northern Virginia, moving from Virginia to here, looking for a house and just going, you know, we ended up almost buying a house near the Jeffersons. We could have been neighbors, really. There were homes right up under them. We looked at, just didn't feel like those were the right houses for us. Ended up in a neighborhood down here in Morrisville, bought that house. God directing our steps. God leads us from a hotel room to a place on Cary Parkway, 3761 Northwest Cary Parkway. We're there for a while, and then, then we leave there. And God, I'm driving by here one day because I woke up after a horrible night of sleep and said, we need a building. And I just started driving all over the area one day, burning gas. It was cheap back then. And I drove by here, and this, this property was... Uh, grass up to about your neck and in the middle of the grass as it's waving I see for sale by owner sign and I just decide to stop I pull over I walk across the street and I call it that's almost right out where our sign is and I call the guy and and the guy is living in Georgia and he he hears it's a church and he goes I'd love to sell to a church my son is a Southern Baptist pastor and I go oh okay and then in the middle of that conversation, we made an agreement that we would give him 20% down for what he was asking and that he would finance the loan for two years. And, you know, I never asked anybody if I could do that. It never even crossed my mind I'd ask somebody if I should do that. And I came home and said, honey, do we have $90,000? <laughs> and she said, no. Why? Well, I just agreed with this guy on the phone in Georgia that I'd give him 90 grand. Um... Maybe I should have done that. So I called our two deacons, Ricky and Vernon, said, uh, hey, do either of you guys got $90,000 lying around? But you know what? God just kind of directed our steps. We, we started a fundraiser, and we raised all the money we needed, and God provided, and every single step we took, some were wrong. I knew I was just blundering. Because I was walking blind myself. It's, it's, it's like trying to have somebody tell you which way to turn and not be able to see. That's how I felt half the time. Just blindly walking, just trying to listen to the voice of God, often getting ahead of him. But God is directing every single step until you realize, I, I have been in Moab and now I'm back in Israel. And my, my daughter-in-law, who had no connection to me, has now married this man and she has a son, and I don't realize this, but my great-great-great-grandson is going to be king over this whole land because God is directing every single step.
And for whatever reason, that's what he does. And so here you are in your life doing the same thing, kind of walking blind. You think this is what God wants. I think it's what God wants. I've prayed. I've sought wisdom. I've read scripture. I've, I've done everything I know to do. I believe in him. That this is what he wants me to do. And then you take a step and then life, and that's life. And life hits and new things happen and new a new dynamic and a new scenario and, and new factors and data to process. And then life, and, and then all of a sudden, you know, for me, I had two little kids. Now when I'm married, I got a grandchild on the way that we call Hammer. Who would have saw that coming? Nobody. I could never have written that script. I would never have thought Jason would be my son-in-law. And we love Jason. He's just awesome. If you don't love Jason, there's something wrong with you. That's, that's what I've kind of concluded. But you, we, just, we just go, I don't know. has to be God. It has to be God. He overrules the affairs of men for he overrules the sin of mankind, but even better, he walks beside you every day. And when you wake up with 102 fever tomorrow, or your car won't start, or your boss says, we need to have a talk, you know, those interest rates are getting pretty bad. We're cutting back at the company. Whatever it is, bad. Or you, you get a check in the mail from somebody you didn't know, a long-lost aunt who passed away and just left you a half a million dollars. You know, whatever it is. You just go, God is directing my steps. He's leading me. I, I've always thought it's kind of funny, the man who wrote that hymn, He leadeth me, O blessed thought. He was a pastor up in the Pennsylvania area. And he was between churches. He had written a poem. I guess the poem had been published. He wasn't aware of it. He wrote the poem. The poem got published. And later some musician came along and said, oh, what a great poem. Wrote it, put it in a hymn, as a hymn. And it was published in a hymnal. The pastor walks in the back of this church. I think it was Philadelphia. He picks up the hymnal. He's trying to decide, should I come to this church or not? He's flipping through the hymnal and goes, what? I wrote that. That's, that's my name. He leadeth me. Oh, blessed thought. The words from heaven that bring comfort, they're fraught with comfort. So whatever I do and whatever I be, God through the Jordan, he leads me. College, career, marriage, family, children, church life, grandchildren, middle age, sag, old age, Death, heaven, the new earth, eternity, and glory. And he's with you every moment, every step, never alone, 
never unknown to him, always seen, always cared for, always there. That's what he does. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this text. Thank you for the story, stories, the ugly story of Judah and Tamar, the beautiful stories of Rahab and Salmon, of Boaz and Ruth. Thank you that we see here your sovereign hand, God, as you overrule the affairs of men, as your mercy overrules our sin, as your will directs our steps. Help us, Lord, to remember that this week. Before I finish praying, I don't really want you to raise your hand. There's, there's really no hand to raise. I mean, it's like, how many of you love God? Raise your hand. I mean, there's not, it just doesn't make sense. If you don't love God, we have other problems. The question isn't, is God leading your life? The question is, are you cognizant of it? Are you aware that he is? Right now, what I want you to do in your heart, just say, Lord, you're leading me. Thank you. Thank you for leading me. Maybe you need to ask him to continue to guide your steps. Maybe you've got a big decision coming up. Whatever it is, maybe you're just thinking, I'm so glad he overruled the last dumb decision I made. Maybe it's bigger than that. There's big issues going on, and you're just looking at life, and you're going, this is too much for me even to think about. But God overrules the affairs of men. And he rules over mankind, over his world, to bring about his ends. Just go to the Lord in prayer. I'm going to ask the pianist to play a hymn of invitation.